right. Well, good morning. Um, I, I'm very thankful for the introduction because then I don't have to take up too much time introducing myself. And uh, time is precious, and uh, I would like to be respectful of yours. And uh, like I said, it is my wife's birthday today, so um, we do need to uh, make sure that we celebrate that. And, uh, and honestly, this, this passage of scripture that we have today is just extremely fascinating. And so I really want to uh, dive into it, begin to un- unpack it with you. So is it, if it's okay that we just skip the formalities and jump in, would, would that be all right? Good, because I didn't have any other plan. Um, so I want to I want to thank you for having me here today. Um, uh, as uh, as most of you know, and as I had to learn, um, uh, you guys you're you're following the liturgical calendar, and you're in uh, the season of Epiphany. And uh, for me, I, honestly, I I don't think I grew up in any kind of tradition that at least overtly was following the the church calendar, and so. Um, Epiphany was not something that we really talked about very much, but uh, you guys are in your third week here, and uh, as many of you will remember that this is uh, a season marked uh, by uh, illumination, revelation, and manifestation. Uh, the intangible becoming tangible, uh, the invisible becoming visible. Uh, and, and in today's reading, we will certainly see an epiphany as it relates to Jesus' earliest followers. So let's begin by uh, reading the passage, and uh, we'll try to give some background to gain some deeper understanding after. So our uh, passage today is from Mark 1, 21 to 28. It reads, they, and, and you may remember from last week, this is, this is the crew that Jesus is kind of building up, the, uh, the fishermen that he has gained in his group. So they went to Capernaum, and when, it, uh, when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. This means that Jesus already had some kind of a reputation in Capernaum. They, they didn't just let anybody walk in off the street and uh, come up and preach. And so uh, that, that was what's going on here. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught uh, them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He, gives, uh, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So there's a, there's a blank slide there if you want to pull that up. Um, so first, a little, a little background into the book of Mark itself. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice about Mark 
is uh, that it, it is very similar to the other Gospels that we read. Um, a lot of people believe that uh, Mark was the original Gospel and that Matthew and Luke are somewhat borrowing from Mark and John is way out in left field doing his own thing. And so um, Mark is one of the shortest Gospel accounts that we have. So it's easy to consume. Uh, for some of you, it might even be easy to consume in just a single sitting. Uh, so we're talking like 16 chapters. Um, and so uh, one thing that we must remember as we're looking at a particular gospel account is that uh, though these accounts were, were definitely telling a similar story, uh, each gospel writer had their own intention. And they were making deliberate decisions with their retelling of these uh, stories and different aspects they want to emphasize. And that's why we have the four gospel accounts. It's, it, it, that's why early church leaders believed that it was important that we held on to the four distinct gospel accounts because they're trying to get at a different aspect of Jesus and his ministry and his work. So Mark is very deliberately asking the reader throughout his gospel, Mark is deliberately asking the reader to struggle just as the people in Jesus' day did with the identity of Jesus. All of the major pivotal moments in this book either open or close with questions. Who is this man? Where did he come from? What is he doing? Or they, they will sometimes end in fear. Think of uh, the, the, the episode where um, Jesus calms the, the raging storm. We see that the disciples are afraid when they're in the boat and it's, it's about to capsize. But after Jesus calms the storm, what are they? They're terrified. Mark amplifies the fear in this story, and that's how it ends. So what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to build up this sense uh, in this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? What, what, is, he, what is he here for? And, and there will be more on this as we close, but for now, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of either an early observer of these events and, uh, and some of the confusion that we might feel around who this Jesus guy is. And maybe you're here today and you're actually new to faith, so this isn't a very difficult place to put yourself in. You're new to faith and you're genuinely asking yourself, who is this Jesus guy? Mark is writing to you. Mark is ultimately writing to all of us, but he particularly has this question in mind as he's retelling the gospel. Now, there's something that happens here that we just, like in this story, that we just cannot, we can't gloss over. It's the big elephant in the room. This is the second time Dan has asked me to come and speak to you guys about demons. <laughs> he's conveniently been away. He knows what he's doing. You're, you're following the calendar. He knows what he's doing. Actually, Dan and I had a really good laugh about this because the last time I was here, we talked about a demon-possessed man and Jesus driving some pigs over the cliff. 
um, we, we, we had a good laugh, both because of the topic last time and the fact that before I, I said I was going to come out here, and after I had preached last time, uh, we actually had a conversation uh, saying that, that I'd taken a bit of a deeper dive into some of this spiritual warfare stuff, and I've been studying the subject, and uh, so I came prepared. I came uh, very prepared today. And so if you don't mind, if we, uh, if we take a little, bit of, a little bit of time to kind of set the stage for this scene that we saw unfolding in the synagogue. Um, and, and part of the reason I want to do that is because um, I find this unbelievably fascinating. And, uh, and it wasn't something, it was something that as a child, I kind of, uh, I, I veered away from. Because a lot of this stuff can be, can be scary. When we, when we hear words like demons, impure spirits, all of this stuff. Uh, and in particular, I think a lot of people who are picking up the Bible, maybe for the first time, it can be a little bit uh, daunting. It can be a little bit scary. And so uh, I want to take a little bit of time to set the stage. Uh, we don't have anywhere near close to the amount of time that, uh, that we need, though, to really even like hit the, the, the tip of the iceberg on this. But we'll, we'll try and do as much as we can. Um, and so uh, I'm going to give you a basic overview of uh, what... A, a spiritual worldview would have been like for the people witnessing this event. So we're going to really do our best to put ourselves in their shoes and what they believed about the world that they were living in. Um, so first off, I want to give you some uh, really good resources, and then I want to give you like one meh resource um, that you can check out. So number one is a guy named Michael Heiser. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, unfortunately... Um, he just passed away last spring, um, and he was, he was a giant in the uh, theological and biblical studies community, particularly around this subject of uh, the spiritual realm. So he has some amazing resources available. Number one would be Unseen Realm. Uh, this is a pretty, uh, pretty big, pretty dense book on uh, the lost uh, kind of a spiritual worldview that uh, the ancients would have had. Um, but he does have a more accessible book called uh, The Supernatural. So this is like his abridged version of uh, that first book, Unseen Realm. And then he has two very specific books, uh, Demons, which obviously emphasizes uh, spiritual evil in the world, and then Angels, uh, which... Uh, which actually covers uh, what we mean when we read things like the heavenly host in Scripture. And so these books um, are a fantastic resource. If you're not much of a reader, he actually did a podcast. He was one of the first like theologians to start doing podcasts. So he has a, a podcast uh, there. Uh, it's called The Naked Bible Podcast. Um, and so he does a really good job of diving into some very deep, very particular subjects Things that when you're reading the Bible, you typically go like, huh, what does that mean? And, and you, have, you have nowhere to go. Um, this guy's a great resource uh, for, uh, for a lot of that stuff, particularly when it comes to the supernatural. Uh, next would be the Bible Project. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Bible Project. This is an amazing resource, and it's absolutely free. Everything that they do is free. 
It is incredible. They have done some very, very good scholarship uh, when it comes to the videos that they are producing. And so they have a series, a whole series of videos. Uh, this is one of the title images that you'll see called Spiritual Beings. Um, and so if you just search on their website, you can find that series, Spiritual Beings. Really, really helpful for understanding. They also have a podcast as well. Um, and on that, they take a deeper dive into some of these subjects. Um, I find uh, their podcast to be really engaging. Um, they have a conversation. There's two of them, really good friends uh, or like kind of high school buddies. So they're, they're basically like a scholar and a layperson having a conversation back and forth about some of these deeper subjects. So it's, it's great dialogue uh, to listen to. And lastly, a kind of meh resource is uh, uh, we did a series on this uh, a few, uh, few months ago. Um, so it's called Not Today, Satan. Um, so we did, it, we did a series. You can check out some of the videos. I, I had three lessons to do what I'm going to try and unpack here. So uh, we're going to try and condense 60 minutes into five. Let's go. Okay. On its basic level, ancient Israelites viewed uh, the nature of existence to be in one of two areas. You either existed within the natural or the physical realm, or I think I've got a diagram here. Yeah. Or uh, the way it's worded in Genesis is that God created the heavens, the unseen realm, or, uh, and he created the earth the seen realm, or we could call those the physical realm, the earth, and uh, the spiritual realm, the heavens, okay? And so uh, you either existed in one of these two uh, places. Uh, these two areas of existence were not mutually exclusive, meaning uh, they quite often interact and overlap with each other even though they are quite distinct levels of existence, primarily that the physical is material, things you can see, touch, feel, hear, all of that, um, and the spiritual is immaterial, things that, that we, we, can't really, we can't really study with science, but we experience them on some level. And so uh, within both of these realms, there, existence, there existed different types of beings or creatures. In the physical, we have things like animals, uh, humans. Uh, that, those are types of beings or creatures that exist within that realm. And then, uh, and then in the spirit, spiritual realm, uh, you will hear the Bible talk about beings like, oh, we lost it. Uh, quite back. There we go. Okay, you'll you'll hear uh, beings talked about angels, cherubim, seraphim, demons. I've got that asterisk. Um, and these are actually in the Hebrew language. These are classified under the word Elohim, which some of you may be familiar with. You may have heard God is often referred to as Elohim. But he's, he's actually referred to more often as the Elohim of Elohims. He's the God of gods. He's almighty God. And so this was a way that ancient people would classify a, a, a way of existing. And so Heiser puts it this way. Um, 
A biblical writer would use Elohim to label any entity that is not embodied by nature and is a member of the spiritual realm. This otherworldliness is an attribute all residents of the spiritual uh, world possess. Every member of the spiritual world can be thought of as an Elohim since the term tells us where an entity belongs in terms of its nature. And so there was this belief in these two realms, the physical existence and the spiritual existence. Now, the reason that, that demons are asterisked in that, in that diagram that I had um, is because they're not really a different type of spiritual being. They're, 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 they're not really distinct from angels, cherubim, and seraphim. Um, rather, the term demon would in fact uh, be one of these spiritual beings in rebellion. In rebellion against Yahweh. This, this title of demon or evil spirit or impure spirit um, was a title that was given to these spiritual beings that it, it actually just distinguished their disposition towards Yahweh. How they felt about God Almighty. And that's, that's what this really, uh, really means. Um, and so uh, sometimes we see the word demon or evil spirit or impure spirit being used as in our passage in question. Uh, and this designation meant that they were a part of the spiritual rebellions that we see recorded in Genesis 3. Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. Namely, so if you, don't, if you don't know just by reference there what's happening, you'll remember some of the stories. Namely, the fall in Eden. Okay, there's a pre-flood account of some spiritual activity that a lot of people skip over. So if you go to the, the flood account you'll, and you go right before it, you're going to see that there's some spiritual activity going on that the flood was a result of. And uh, the Tower of Babel, which later gets unpacked in the book of Deuteronomy. And so there's these three uh, rebellions. And if you want to nerd out on this, uh, you can make a note about it right now. And we can talk about it after. Because uh, we, we can't dive too, too deep into it. The main point that we need to understand here is that there are spiritual beings, Elohim, that are in rebellion against God. They are actively working against God, and moreover, they are working against His creation. As far as the biblical writers are concerned, it seems as though the belief was that these rebellious Elohim had been relegated to Sheol, is the word that we use in the Old Testament. Um, and often some people will, will kind of connect Sheol with the idea of hell, Sheol was a very different um, kind of spiritual realm uh, designation. It actually meant the land of the dead, the land of the dead. And so um, they're, they're not quite the same. Again, if you want to nerd out, we can talk about it later, uh, which uh, was always connected to the notion of chaos, that these were agents of chaos that they were, they were trying to undo God's good order, both in the universe and here on earth. And so, um, 
That is the kind of connection there with demons. They're trying to undo true life with God and human flourishing. These demons, evil spirits, rebellious Elohim, were also given uh, designated people to rule over, except for Israel, because Israel would belong to Yahweh. And this is where Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9 uh, kind of unpacks this. If you're, if you're reading in the NIV, you would read something like this. Uh, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. If you're reading in the NIV, that's what it'll say. If you're actually reading in one of the newer translations, which takes into account some of the Dead Sea Scrolls and information that we have that actually points us to an older translation of this phrase, which actually says the sons of the Elohim, not the sons of Israel. And again, Heiser goes through and unpacks all of this. But the idea here is that it's very similar to uh, what Paul says when, when he says you kind of, God leaves people to their own devices to, to allow them to kind of do their own thing. That's how much God actually loves us, is that he doesn't want to control us like a puppet master. He actually thinks our free will is very important. And so at Babel, the, the big problem was they were trying to create this tower that would get them to God so that they could get God to do uh, their bidding. And, and they were actually trying to worship other gods in the process and bring them down to do their bidding. And so what God does is he disperses them and he says, you want to have these gods as your God? Fine. Let's see what happens. And that is, that's kind of the spiritual world that these people were living under. And so there was this distinct idea that Yahweh was Israel's God and that other nations were actually governed by these rebellious Elohim. And, and, and that was part of the, the narrative that they were living in. Now, Jesus comes on the scene and he undoes a lot of that on the cross. And that's why the mission is to go out into the world to preach the good news that Jesus has conquered these other Elohim. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but this is the world. And so, although there was a belief that these two levels of existence would interact and overlap, this was not the primary means for making sense of the physical world and some of its chaotic events, as some might think. So I'll just give you an example. I remember growing up in church, where uh, when the toilet overflowed and flooded our building, uh, that was considered to be the act of a demon. And, and so uh, that, that is not actually how they viewed the world back in this, in this day, okay? Um, and, uh, and the question of whether biblical writers thought this way um, is one that might arise from this text. We might read this text and go like, oh, they're just used to demons showing up at church. Nobody seems to be reacting. Nobody, like, that's, but that's not Mark's point. Mark's not, I think these people would have been quite terrified when this happened. Again, because their worldview was a little bit different. And again, Heiser does a way better job of, uh, of explaining this than I do. So I'm just going to quote, I'm going to quote him at length here. 
Um, ancient Near Eastern texts make uh, it quite clear that people living in biblical times parsed natural disasters mythically. Storms, earthquakes, diseases, famine, and the like were outbursts of divine wrath uh, from a range of deities. Calamities, illness, or death might occur either because some deity didn't like you or your people. Uh, or as a side effect of a conflict with another deity. So it might be some kind of spillover between like, you know, somebody fighting over milk in the spiritual world. Um, the, the, the question of whether biblical writers, okay? So it's well known that that's how a lot of ancient people viewed it. Everything went back to the spiritual world. Everything cause and effect was caused by these deities, um, but the question is, do the biblical writers believe that? The short answer is yes and no. On the one hand, in biblical thought, everything that threatens life is a result of such rebellion. So talking back to those, those three rebellions, everything is thought of as a result of those rebellions. Natural disaster, disease, and death Exist, uh, extend from humanity's failure to fulfill the Edenic mandate. And that mandate was to, uh, was to subdue and fill the earth. And so that failure that we have to subdue and, and fill the earth, um, and a failure to do that by God's divine wisdom, uh, by eating from the tree of life, Instead, we want to define good and evil on our own. So we eat from the tree of good and evil, deciding it for ourselves. That's what he's kind of talking about here. Um, a failure provoked through the deception of divine rebellion. So there's, there was some kind of intermingling here. The earth was under a curse. Eden was lost. Demonic spirits... Um, Derivative from the transgression in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, uh, became an ongoing scourge of human well-being. God disinherited humanity. This is that event at Babel, at the Babel event, assigning the nations to lesser gods who sowed chaos among their charges. See Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9. Uh, Psalm 82 also describes this. For Israel, raised up by divine intervention on the part of Yahweh after Babel's judgment, things like plague, infertility, sickness, natural disasters, and external threats of violence were only to be feared in the wake of apostasy. So stepping out of line with Yahweh was considered to be something that might invoke these kinds of things. Now, I, want, I think I've got a slide for this. I should anyways. Uh, it begins with this broad-stroked, yes, this broad-stroked worldview puts supernatural causation of natural disaster, illness, and death on the table. It was on the table, so to speak, but it would be an exaggeration to presume that all such things, or even most, would have been viewed as having divine causation. 
Ancient people, especially in complex societies, would have known that common sense and wisdom were behind undesirable circumstances as well. Their outlook was not wholly enchanted. And so often what we do, especially in like um, a post-science era, is we do what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We look back at ancient people and we think, bah, how silly, how stupid. We know better now. And the reality is a, a lot of ancient people were extremely intelligent. You know why? Because they didn't have YouTube. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have all of these distractions. All they could do was meditate on the meaning of life. All they could do was figure out better ways to feed their families. All they could do, these were the things that they focused on. So in actuality, many of these people were probably much wiser than we were. And it's a good thing that we go back to listen to them every once in a while. So all of this to say, when a demon-possessed man shows up in the synagogue, people would have been surprised. They would have been surprised as it, this was not the place that that was typically associated with demonic activity. It was more common that they would show up in ruins, which you do see in, in the scriptures. They would show up in ruins or the outskirts of a town or in the wilderness. This appeared to be an unusual confrontation. This didn't happen all the time. Again, understanding the worldview, we see that the fact that a demon-possessed man crossing into Israel's borders would have been somewhat unusual uh, when it comes to the word possession, by the way. So when it comes to the word possession, one commentator puts it this way, people affected with such spirits in Mark are usually described as if they are under the control of a will and purpose, not their own. That's what... That's what Mark means when he talks about uh, someone under the possession of an impure spirit. Uh, we begin to get a sense of why this is happening. We begin to get a sense of why this outburst at the synagogue is happening when we read the words that the demon says through the man. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Remember, what's Mark's big idea that he's trying to get across? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this demon comes in and he says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Isn't that crazy? Mark is asking the question, who is Jesus and the demon comes in and tells everyone. It's clear that this demon feels threatened, though, by the presence of Jesus. Jesus is waging war on these rebellious spiritual beings. This is what he came to do. This is a big part of what Jesus is doing and his activity here revolves around this. This is why we see so many of these interactions in the New Testament, even though they weren't normal things. Um, and, and this is what is incredible. What does Jesus' war on these rebellious Elohim look like? 
Is he like jumping off the top rope, giving them the people's elbow, all that stuff? Is he, is he engaging in that kind of warfare? No, he's healing the sick. He's feeding the poor. He's reconciling people with God. This is the way that Jesus does battle. And this is the way that he calls us to join him in the fight. Jesus is often depicted, and we sang about it earlier this morning, and I didn't, I, I didn't give them my notes, so this is really cool. Um, we, we sang about this this morning. Uh, Jesus is often depicted as a gentle lamb. He's a lamb, which much of his action in the physical world looks like. Uh, it, it looks like that. As I mentioned before, he's healing the sick, feeding the poor, reconciliation. Those look like the activity of a lamb, a gentle lamb, one that you can, you can you know, pet and cuddle with. And... But Jesus is also referred to as a lion. And the most blatant example of these, these, this twofold description is found in Revelation 5, 5 to 6. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And so here's what's happening. John is having this vision of a whole bunch of things that are happening. And right now he's looking at a a scroll with a seal on it that can't be broken. It can't be opened. And he's being told that it needs to be read aloud for people to be saved and all this stuff. And he says, it can't be opened. No one can open it. And that's why he's weeping. And then somebody says, behold, the lion of Judah is coming. And, and, and John's like, okay, where? And he turns around, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. John hears about a lion coming, and he sees a lamb. And this is what, what's going on with Mark here in this scene. Everybody sees a lamb except for the demon. The demon sees a lion. And he's scared. And this is the incredible picture of how God's kingdom is an upside-down version of what we often think when it comes to words like war and victory. And we sang those words this morning, you know, and we're going to talk about how the battle belongs to Jesus. When we talk about these words, we are not actually talking about real physical violence. We are talking about the kind of battle that Jesus does the kind that ends him up as the slain lamb. Now, as we go back to the text, one of the things that needs to be mentioned is the fact that uh, in this very short passage, we actually see the word authority twice. We see the, the word authority used twice. First, to speak about Jesus' teaching, that he taught with authority. He taught with authority, unlike the scribes and the other teachers of the law. He was teaching differently than anyone else. And the second time is to emphasize once again, this new teaching and with authority. And then they emphasize, he even, he even has authority over demons. See, when Jesus taught, 
He wasn't drawing off of anyone else's authority. Typically what you would do in that day when you got in the synagogue, you would be like, Rabbi so-and-so says that this is what this means. And Rabbi so-and-so says it's actually this. And so let's talk about that. That was the way you kind of unpacked scripture in the synagogue. And you'll even, you, you see me doing it today. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep all my notes together because often what will happen is somebody will come up to me after and they'll, they'll be like, so where did you get that idea? And I hear what they're saying. They're saying like, well, where did you get that idea? But really what they're saying is like, did you make that up? Did you make that up? And, um, and so I like to have all of my sources. I don't speak on just my authority. I'm trying to find, you know, some other places where I can be drawing on wisdom that has come before me. But Jesus relies solely on his authority. They're like, well, why do you think it's that interpretation? Because I said so. And so that is kind of the scene. That is what, what is happening here. And, uh, and here's what happens. Uh, he tells the demon uh, to, just, to just leave a man. And the demon's already cowering. And he leaves. And everybody's sitting here and they're going, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Can you believe what we just saw? He came in with his own teaching and with authority, and then he told a demon to leave somebody, and they listened. This must be incredible. Like, this is, this is amazing. It's impressive. It's so cool. And that's how the crowds felt when they left Jesus' teaching. They were in awe. They were in wonder. But this is actually the crisis that Mark is trying to give here in this telling of this story. Mark is trying to create a crisis in our hearts and minds as we read this, and he's playing off of it. Everyone is impressed and amazed by Jesus, but it doesn't say that anyone began to have faith in him. And I believe I've got a slide for that one there. Everyone is impressed and amazed by Jesus, but it doesn't say that anyone began to have faith in him. In fact, as we said earlier, all throughout Mark's gospel, everyone is struggling to figure out who Jesus is. Mark cleverly states it actually three times. Once at Jesus' baptism, God the Father pronounces this is my son. This is my son with whom I am pleased. And then once again, the middle of Mark on the mountain of transfiguration, God the Father pronounces once again, this is my son whom I love. And then finally, who reveals his identity the third time? Does anybody know? Mark's gospel. Who reveals his identity the third time? It's at the end. Not the very end, but it's close to the end. Mark 15, 39. A centurion. A centurion who witnessed his crucifixion said this, 
This truly was the Son of God. The Son of God. Everyone is missing it. Until He's hung on the cross. And it is at this point that the epiphany happens for this soldier. The light bulb comes on. It's when Jesus dies on the cross that he says, he's the son of God. It's when he sees the full extent of Jesus' love for humanity. It's only possible that he's the son of God. Now, what am I supposed to do? Now, another thing I want you to notice about Mark because I'm beginning to, as I'm studying this, I really think that this is intentional. And um, you'll notice if you, if you turn to your Bibles, even in your apps, whatever you've got for reading your Bibles, one of the things you'll notice is that Mark, uh, Mark 16, 8, uh, you'll notice there's usually like a dividing line. It says, older manuscripts, Mark ends here. So the oldest manuscripts we have of Mark, the original, kind of the closest thing to the original texts that we have, have a shorter ending in Mark. And for various reasons, one of them being that all of a sudden Mark gets really weird at that point. Um, I really believe that the short ending in Mark is the original um, that, that we've got. And so that shorter ending in Mark, it actually ends with the women leaving the tomb, frightened, and saying nothing. It follows Mark's scheme. Mark leaves us hanging. He, he leaves us hanging there. And, and he does that on purpose. He wants the reader to ask, what am I going to do? Am I, am I going to be just left in fear and awe and wonder and amazement? Or am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to put my faith, which the biblical word for faith really goes with, am I going to align with Jesus? Am I going to trust in Jesus? It has more to do with this idea of loyalty, not just belief. We can believe that all these things happen. We see the demon does. We can believe all this stuff. Are we going to align with it? Are we going to trust him? the one who hung on the cross and said, this is the way that you have victory. Are we going to follow him? Are we going to trust him? I think I've got another slide here. Notice that you can be impressed with Jesus. You can, be, you can admire Jesus. You can respect Jesus. You can even love Jesus and not know him. This was the big surprise that, that Jesus had for his followers when he talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats. He says, you know, there's going to be people that, that think that they know me. They're going to come and they're going to say, like, why, why can't I come into your kingdom? And he's going to say, I never knew you. And then there's going to be people that were like, I don't understand. I, I, didn't, I didn't think that I, that I fit into the... the the, the doctrinal lines that everybody drew for me. And he says, welcome. When, when I was sick, you came and you visited me. 
When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you, you came and visited me. And this is one of your core values as a church, right? This is one of your core values, that people would know Jesus, not just be amazed by him. Because lots of people were amazed by him. He was a pretty impressive guy. But that we would know him. The demon in this story knows about and even fears who Jesus is. He knows Jesus' identity, but he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't trust Jesus. That's the whole point of being a spiritual being in rebellion. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust the way that he wanted to run the world. To take this knowing Jesus one step further, I believe and I've come to experience that the truest form of this knowing Jesus because I, I, I mean, you might be able to tell, I really like to do like research on this stuff. I like to dig in deep. I want to I know a lot of answers. I want to know a lot of things. I want to I know more about Jesus. But the truest form of this is not only being a, in a place of trusting in what you do know about Jesus, but it's trusting that he knows you. He knows you. And for some of us, I've got, it's in bold, it's capitalized. He knows you. And for some of us, this might be a scary thought. He knows the deep recesses of my life. And for some of us, this might be a wonderful and deeply good news. He knows and he sees me. He sees my pain. He sees my suffering. He understands me. He gets me. I've been reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time uh, with my boys, and it has been an adventure. And my wife will often, as I come downstairs, she'll be like, when did they fall asleep? Like 15 minutes ago, you've been reading by yourself for like 15 minutes. And uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a character by the name of Eustace is trying to make sense of an experience that he had with Aslan. And if, if you're not familiar with the series, you probably know that Aslan the lion, so I've got a picture here, I think, as well. You, you probably know that Aslan the lion represents the, the Jesus character in the story. And C.S. Lewis is incredible, incredible at writing Jesus into this story. It's, it's amazing. Eustace is trying to make sense of an experience that he just had with Aslan. And he's speaking to Edmund, who's in the picture there. A traitor who had experienced the true depth of Aslan's love and forgiveness for him when Aslan traded his own life for Edmund's. And this is, this is the scene, and if the worship team wants to come up and, and get ready, uh, we'll follow up in some worship. But this was the scene that played out. What do you think it was then? Asked Eustace. 
I think you've met Aslan, said Edmund. Aslan, said Eustace. I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader. And I, and I felt, I don't know what, I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. That's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only a jerk. That's, I changed the word there for church sensitivity. You were only a jerk, but I was a traitor. I was a traitor. I was a rebel. Well, don't tell me about it then, said Eustace. But who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. We've all seen him. Lucy sees him most often, and it may be Aslan's country we are sailing to. He knows me. If we can get a hold of this, this understanding that, that Jesus deeply wants to be in relationship with us, that he's willing to go to war, that he is willing to do battle, that he is willing to give up his entire life, then maybe we can have the epiphany. Maybe we can have the realization. Maybe we can be illuminated. And that's what this season is all about. This is the epiphany that Mark wants us to have about Jesus. That the amazing and wonderful thing about the kingdom of God is that it's upside down. It's nothing like what we experience here. And the way that Jesus wages war in the spiritual realm is upside down. That it's not just about being amazed and in awe of him. It is to truly know him as the son of God. And to know him is to truly be known by him.